If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 231 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which we're focusing on social learning. Social learning is a topic we've written about extensively, and we've done at least one webinar on it before, but we haven't dedicated a podcast episode to it, and now seems like a good time to do that for a number of reasons. And there are indeed a number of reasons. One is that social learning showed up recently as one of the innovation triggers in the e-learning hype curve from WebCourseWorks, which we discussed with Andy Hicken in episode 229. We think social learning is resurging because with the growing emphasis on learning in the flow of work, which is another item from the innovation triggers area of the hype curve, more people are recognizing, even if only intuitively, that it's often the brief informal exchanges with colleagues that do the most to help us pick up new information, modify our ideas and perspectives, and learn at the pace that modern, the modern work world demands, and for that matter, the, the modern world in general demands. Additionally, and completely related to what you were just saying, Jeff, is that as our understanding of learning in general has grown, more people understand that learning is a process, not an event. And social learning very much aligns with this perspective. Social learning typically occurs through multiple interactions, often with multiple people. And as Andy rightly noted, some newer technologies have emerged, with Slack being the main example, that have helped social learning gain much more of a foothold in the workplace. So for these reasons alone, we would expect social learning to continue to build steam in the coming year. But with what is now happening with COVID-19, the focus on social learning is likely to intensify dramatically. As people have to deal with social distancing and the move toward many more people working at home, we're naturally going to need to learn to use technology better to support productive, meaningful social interaction. And a key goal for learning professionals of all stripes will be how to ensure these interactions facilitate learning. And at the same time, and and this is really critical, the average person is likely to become much more receptive to using technologies that can help support scalable, distributed social learning. And we're already seeing this, in fact, with with many people in our own lives uh, starting to take advantage of technologies like Zoom, for example, to come together online because they don't have the option to come together in person. So with all that in mind, we want to spend some time talking about what social learning is and, given our audience, offer some guidance on how to design for social learning. As we head into that discussion, we'll pose two reflection questions, which you will be able to find in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 231. First, what role has social learning played in your portfolio of offerings in the past, even if you weren't fully conscious of its role? Second, in what ways might you be more intentional and strategic about designing for and facilitating social learning going forward? How might you leverage technology to help achieve your goals? So keep those questions in mind as we continue this discussion, and let's turn now to defining social learning. Right. So what is social learning? First, it seems important to stress that while technology is one of the factors bringing social learning back into the spotlight, social learning is not fundamentally about technology. The way we define social learning is really quite broad. Our definition is adapted from an article that came out 
several years ago in ecology and society, and we'll be sure to, to link to that in the show notes. And there are three major components to social learning as we define it. The first is that social learning occurs through social interactions and processes between actors within a social network. So we talk with other people, we read what they've written, we observe what they do, we react and respond. Second, social learning facilitates change in the individuals involved. So our knowledge, our behavior, our perspectives, our attitude, or some combination of those is altered through social learning. And then third, social learning potentially becomes situated within wide units or communities of practice. So it has the potential to change not just individuals, but organizations, communities, and entire societies. So to state all of what you've just said, Jeff, a bit differently, we can say people learn through interacting with each other. This learning, like all learning, changes them as individuals, but it also has the potential to change the broader groups within which they participate. Now, obviously, this last part is particularly powerful if you're focused on organizational change or on impacting an entire field or industry. While it's not necessarily true that all social learning has to generate broader change, the fact that it can has tremendous strategic implications. And now, really, when it comes down to it, the vast majority of learning is social, but that doesn't mean all social learning is the same kind of social. And Salisa, you've gone deeper on this before and written about four dimensions to social learning, and those are immediacy, structure, scale, and transparency. Can you say a bit more about those dimensions? And I'll note that we'll include a graphic of these in the show notes for the episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 231. Well, along the first dimension, immediacy, the continuum for social learning runs from direct and instant involvement of learners. So think, for example, of face-to-face -face conversations to delayed and indirect exchanges. Um, as an example of that, I have a book called The Practice of Poetry, Writing Exercises from Poets Who Teach on my bedside table. It was published almost 25 years ago, and yet those poets are still teaching me today. The second dimension, structure, is more or less apparent in social learning. Social learning can be more or less formal. Now note, um, as this dimension makes clear, social learning is not necessarily informal learning. It may be informal, but the two are not coterminous. On the less structured end, social learning might have us match a mentor to a mentee, and that's the extent of our design of social learning. Or we can take a more structured approach to social learning. We could provide mentors and mentees with a set of activities and questions to work through according to a set timeline, for example. And now the third dimension you write about is scale. So social learning can be small scale or massive. At one extreme, social learning really needs only two people. You know, think of author and reader, mentor and mentee, two colleagues at the legendary water cooler. And then at the other extreme, it can involve thousands, even millions of learners. When Stephen Downs and George Siemens, for example, offered arguably the first MOOC, Massive Open Online course, in 2008, um, and that was a course called Connectivism and Connective Knowledge, over 2,200 learners signed on, and that seemed quite big at the time. Now, Coursera's Learning How to Learn MOOC, which you discussed with its creator, Barbara Oakley, back in episode 104, that currently has almost 2 million enrollments, and the course is still running and welcoming more learners. 
Transparency, the fourth dimension, is about how aware the learners are about the social aspect of the learning. This relates to those first two dimensions, to immediacy and structure, in that the more immediate and the more structured the social learning, the more likely learners are to see how the learning is social. But I think it's important to include it as a separate dimension because even in the case of immediate and structured social learning, designers get to decide whether to forefront what they're doing in a particular learning experience to support social learning or whether they're going to be more opaque about it and sort of bake the social learning in without calling attention to this. You can think of this like those brownies where the chef sometimes sneaks spinach in or or the custard pie where there's summer squash in it, but only the, the chef knows. Now, as a, an example of how this can play out, Hot seats at workshops can be a great social learning tool, and we've made use of those at both our face-to-face and online events, and we've come to call them collaborative coaching. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the concept, you have a learner who volunteers to be in the hot seat. This can be an actual stool or chair where learners, the other learners can see and hear that volunteer if it's a face-to-face event, or it can be a, a metaphorical seat if it's a, an online event. And so then that volunteer briefly shares a problem or an opportunity that she wants help with. And then the room of other learners offers her in rapid fire fashion ideas for how to address the problem or seize the opportunity. The person in the hot seat listens but shouldn't respond during the rapid fire suggestions. At the end, the facilitator offers her two cents and then uh, whoever's in that hot seat may choose to respond, but they should keep it brief and, and often just saying thanks is all that's required. So if we take that as an example, that hot seat can be more or less transparent. The facilitator can talk about how the other learners are learning by listening and generating ideas, how they're getting practice in brainstorming and critical thinking. Um, and you know that they're getting all of that even if the problem or opportunity raised by the person in the hot seat doesn't directly apply to them. Or the facilitator can skip that and really just focus on providing the rules. That is, she can be more or less transparent in her use of the hot seat as a social learning tool. And I'll note that we have written in detail about that whole collaborative coaching approach. Um, we'll be sure to, to link to that post in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 231. So immediacy, structure, scale, transparency. And I think it's really valuable to break social learning down into these dimensions because it gives us a way of appreciating and clearly articulating the many ways in which social learning happens. We should be clear, though, that there's no value judgment here. No particular point along any of the four dimensions is inherently better than any other. It's not necessarily better for social learning to happen on a larger scale or be more immediate. It's not de facto better for social learning to be less structured or more transparent. It really comes down to what your goals are and what makes sense for achieving those goals. So having said that and having defined social learning, let's look at how to design for social learning. But first, we want to highlight our sponsor for this episode. WebCourseWorks is a leading learning technologies and consulting company that is forging a path of innovation in the e-learning industry. The company's experiences and expertise guide its partners to become the leading providers of education in their fields. WebCourseWorks channels organization learning efforts to deliver on the promise of revolutionary performance improvement. 
Course Stage, the learning management system from WebCourseWorks, is built for organizations and professional development initiatives. It enables organizations to customize learning experiences, track users' success, and make data-driven decisions. Course Stage LMS is designed specifically to handle continuing education and professional development activities for organizations who want to grow their learning business. Access a demonstration of Course Stage LMS as well as other valuable webinars from WebCourseWorks at leadinglearning.com slash WCW. You can also download WebCourseWorks 2020 e-learning hype curve predictions by going to leadinglearning.com slash hype. And please do visit WebCourseWorks. Their sponsorship is critical to our being able to produce this podcast each week and provide it as a service to the learning business community. And I'll note, too, that their platform, Course Stage, has many features that support social learning. But, of course, that begs the question, how do we design for a type of learning that, when it works best, seems to arise naturally? Well, I think that's a very important question, and it points to two common and antipodal tendencies when it comes to designing social learning. One is to underthink it and focus on social learning tools rather than social learning philosophy. So this approach provides the mechanisms, the tools for social learning, and then assumes that social so, that social learning will just happen naturally. Um, you know, Jeff, you made the point that there are no value judgments related to the different dimensions of social learning, but we, we should point out that uh, the structure dimension runs from more structure to less structure, and there's a big difference between no structure, and even just a little bit of structure. Yeah, it's definitely true. You can't just assume that because human beings have an affinity for social learning that all we have to do is provide a way for two or more learners to connect, you know, put them in the same room or add them to the same online community, and voila, social learning. We all know that rarely happens. We just won't be very effective at designing social learning with that underthinking approach. Right. And then, of course, the other tendency is to overthink social learning and underestimate our natural human capabilities and experience with it. Odds are you have a great deal of experience with social learning. Odds are your organization is doing social learning now. At your face-to-face conference and workshops that you've held in the past, your facilitators were hopefully incorporating peer learning. They were having learners work in pairs or groups to solve a problem. They were encouraging questions and and using those to adjust where they focused their time. They were not, at least hopefully, just saying, talk to each other. They were scaffolding and structuring discussion. They were scaffolding and structuring the social learning. And so, Salisa, you've come up with four simple steps to help people in the design of social learning. Those are describe, assess, learn, and improve. Why don't we take a minute and and talk through those? So the first is to describe your products in terms of social learning. How are you using social learning in each of your products? So you want to take an inventory of your use of social learning in each product in terms of those four dimensions that we talked about at the beginning, immediacy, structure, scale, and transparency. And as you take that inventory, do you see patterns If all your social learning is very loosely structured or done on a large scale, that may suggest an opportunity to experiment at other points on those dimensions. Do you see no patterns? That might suggest the need for your organization to be more holistically aware of social learning. 
Are there products you can't adequately inventory for social learning because you don't know enough about them? Um, I think that can often be the case with uh, concurrent conference sessions, for example. So then uh, the next is to assess the effectiveness of your products in terms of social learning. So for each product, what is the learning you're trying to achieve? An awareness of the context can help you assess whether the current mix of immediacy, structure, scale, and transparency is appropriate. For example, in the context of set curricula or exam prep, the social learning may be more highly structured to allow it to speak to the curricula or the exam content. In the context of learning focused at the higher end of Bloom's taxonomy, so synthesis and evaluation, the social learning may be smaller in scale and more immediate to really get learners engaged. And again, there are no value judgments, no across-the-board right or wrong approaches. You have to think through what each product is trying to do. How would you rate the effectiveness of your educational product's use of social learning? Next, learn more about social learning. What social learning are you experiencing beyond what your organization offers? You want to sample other social learning, both social learning that's similar to what your organization is doing or trying to do, and social learning that is different from what you're after. If you're being a thoughtful social learner, you're going to pick up ideas and tools that may apply to what your organization offers or will offer in the future. And then finally, improve how you're using social learning. Based on what you know from the other three steps, where can you improve what you're currently doing with social learning? Where can you play with the mix of the four social learning dimensions to get a better match for the goals for the particular educational product? Where can you more consciously design social learning? And don't be afraid to experiment as long as you're prepared to learn from what works and, of course, what doesn't, and then adjust accordingly. So to circle back to some of our comments at the beginning, this really is a time for meaningful experimentation. We know that social learning can be so important for supporting learning in the flow of work, learning that may not lend itself well to formal methods, but we're still learning how to do that most effectively. And with so many people now facing restrictions on face-to-face -face social interaction, we're all going to have to experiment and learn together about how to connect online in ways that effectively support social learning. So those are some of our thoughts on social learning. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 231. And the show notes will include the reflection questions. And those are, what role has social learning played in your portfolio of offerings in the past, even if you weren't fully conscious of its role? Second, in what ways might you be more intentional and strategic about designing for and facilitating social learning going forward? How might you leverage technology to achieve your goals? And I'll note too that um, we did issue a report titled Social Learning in the Association Space a while back. Um, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. And when you check out the show notes, you're going to see options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That'll put you in the right place. Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and review. And those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. We'd be grateful if you'd check out our sponsor for this episode. 
Access a demonstration of the Course Stage LMS and other valuable webinars from WebCourseWorks at leadinglearning.com WCW. And you can grab their 2020 e-learning hype curve predictions at leadinglearning.com hype. Finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and you guessed it, on LinkedIn at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on each of those channels. Wherever and however you do it, please do follow us and help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.